There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you are a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Father, thank you for the, your word and how it speaks to us at so many different levels. It gives us light and guidance in all the seasons of our life. It points out things about your character and things about our hearts, even things that we would rather not acknowledge are there. And we, I pray this morning, Father, in particular, that you would use your word to reveal the unstated assumptions of our heart, especially those that might lead us to love money and lack mercy and be on the runway to lasting misery as a result. Would you turn us from these things and turn us to our Savior, Jesus Christ? We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, years ago, I got a chance to sit with someone who was what they call a master plumber. Uh, that means he spent his, basically his entire career doing this one thing and got to be extremely good at it, and as a result, could charge a premium for his services. And I asked him, what was the worst thing that ever happened to you in your career as a master plumber? He said, well, when I was a young plum plumber back in the day, I went to something I thought was going to be a one-person job. That was the first assumption that I made. I walked up to this job, and it turned out that it was an apartment building, and I was going to be working on the plumbing on the top floor. There was no elevator. I had to go up all the way up the stairs. Uh, the problem is that the water shutoff was in the basement. So I turned off the water, walked my way all the way up the many, many stairs, got up to the apartment. Uh, that's when he discovered his second mistaken deception. Uh, the area he was working was in a particular bedroom, and so he had to move the mattress out of the way to get to the floorboards and to the pipe. He got out his welding torch, and he assumed that the mattress was a safe distance away from that open flame. Uh, he assumed wrongly, and very quickly he had an inferno on his hands, which led to his third assumption looking for some solution to the problem. He noticed a window and he thought, 
I'll just throw this flaming mattress out the window. That'll solve my problem. Uh, but he assumed that the window would be an escape route. It turned out it had bars on it. So the mattress rebounded toward him, singeing him in the process. So as a result, he had to run down all the flights of steps, turn the water back on, run all the way back up, water geysering out of the unfinished pipe. Thankfully, the building did not burn down. Untested assumptions, they can lead you to some pretty hot water. Um, that's certainly true if you're a plumber doing some work. It's true if you're a student trying to figure out what career you're going to go into. That's true if you're trying to get to know a spouse, someone you might marry one day. Uh, we are right to stop and pause and check whether we are really understanding the state of things or whether we are just believing something, maybe even banking on something that turns out to be completely false. Well, this morning, Jesus tells a very penetrating parable for the purpose of waking us up from the spell of a life full of ungodly assumptions. Uh, three particular assumptions that are common to the human heart that have been present for thousands of years now. And yet, if we're not careful, we could find ourselves in hot water if we don't test them in our own lives. Uh, my burden this morning through this one story is to get across this one truth. Jesus wants you to know that the heart that loves money and lacks mercy is heading for lasting ruin. The heart that loves money and lacks mercy is heading for lasting ruin. He'll do that through this one story, which will break up into three assumptions that Jesus will show to be false through this parable. I'll give you those assumptions ahead of time. Here they are. First, verses 19 through 21, I'm rich, so I must be righteous. I'm rich, so I must be righteous. Second, 22 through 26, I deserve mercy, but I don't need to show it. I deserve mercy, but I don't need to show it. And third, 27 through 31, I, I just need more convincing reasons to believe. I just need more convincing reasons to believe. Let's let Jesus unearth these assumptions and show them to be false in light of the glory of God and the reality of heaven and hell. We'll begin in that first one, 19 through 21. Um, last week, Jesus started interacting with the Pharisees. Luke told us in verse 14 that the Pharisees were lovers of money. They had heard Jesus' teaching on stewardship and instead of repenting as they should have, they instead responded with ridicule. How in the world can anyone listen to a penniless preacher like him? Clearly, he is not righteous, because unlike us, he is not rich. Well, it's to that that Jesus tells what I think is to be understood as a parable. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I call it a parable um, there's much dispute about whether you should understand it as a story that really happened to real people that Jesus knows about with his special knowledge, or whether, like so many of the other stories he tells, it has this specific function as a story with one main surprising point to get to our hearts. Now, I will acknowledge it is an unusual parable. It is the only parable that I know of 
that includes names for the characters within it. Uh, there's two people, both Abraham and Lazarus have a name. It's also the only parable that takes place, it has a setting beyond this earthly life into the categories of heaven and hell. Now that makes it a very unusual parable, but still I think a parable nonetheless. And one thing of note about Jesus's parables, uh, they're always set in the real world. Uh, as I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, but as far as I know, Jesus never sets a parable in Middle Earth with hobbits and dwarves and ring wraiths and all the, the rest, right? His parables are situations in the real world that people live in. Uh, a farmer out raise, uh, trying to grow crops, a couple about to be married, a guy trying to build a tower. And that means they carry the assumptions of the real world with them. Now, again, as a parable, though, you don't want to press the details. So there will be things that line up with what the whole Bible teaches about life after death, heaven and hell. And yet we're not to get caught up in all of the details. I'll point out the ones I think that we should not take overly literally. Now, the story itself is very, very simple, at the beginning at least. There's two very, very different people. There is a ridiculously rich man. Um, when I say ridiculously rich man, in our terms, it's like a fat cat, right? Uh, he is a, a guy that has so much money, he doesn't know what to do with it. So he wears outer garments that are colored purple. Uh, to us, that doesn't mean anything special, but back then, you could only get purple dye by extracting it by hand from sea snails. And you only got a tiny little drop for each snail which meant it was unbelievably expensive to get anything dyed purple, which is why only royals wore that color. Royal purple comes from there. Um, but this guy, he has so much money that he's got a whole closet full of purple coats to choose from. Um, he's also described as having fine linen underwear, uh, even the clothes you don't see, his inner garments. He imports cotton from Egypt. Because what's the point in life if your underwear is not silky smooth, right? Uh, he lives a rich life in every way you can think of. He lives in a really, really big house. It would have had a really, really big table for dinner. And he makes sure he has really, really big feasts each and every night. Only the finest fare for the finest among us. Uh, Luke uses the term sumptuous to describe the, his eating habits. I don't think he was into calorie counting. And in front of his ridiculously big mansion was an ornate gate. Because what's the point in being rich if everyone doesn't know that you're rich? So you have a ridiculously rich guy on one side. On the other side, you have a pitiable poor man by the name of Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus has virtually everything going against him that you can imagine. Um, he's described as having his whole body covered with sores. Clearly, he's not in good health, whatever's going on. He's unbelievably hungry, maybe even famished to the point where he can't even move anymore. So in desperation, he's literally laying in front of the rich man's gate, helpless, hapless, hoping that the mercy of this super rich guy might result in even just a few crumbs for him to eat. No one notices poor little Lazarus, though. Certainly not the rich man, and nobody else. He is one of those invisible people on the street corner just laying there. The only attention he gets are from the neighborhood dogs 
who come and lick his sores. By the way, that's not a good image of comfort. Dogs were considered unclean, so it's adding insult to injury. Not only is he sick and dying and hungry, now he's ritually impure as well. Luke paints with vivid contrast these two different people. And immediately, to those hearing the story, there would have been a set of assumptions that would have kicked into gear. Clearly, the rich man is righteous. And clearly, poor Lazarus is impure. Now, back then, the Jews in that day had connected the dots between your material prosperity and your money in this world and what they thought of your standing in heaven with God. If you're righteous, well, that must mean you will be rich. Because, of course, God's the one who owns everything, and he knows how to bless those who do what's right and good. So they assumed that anyone who was rich must be righteous. On the other hand, they assumed anyone who's poor must be particularly guilty as some sort of a sinner. Maybe it's not something that the world knows about, but surely God knows the heart. He wouldn't cause someone to suffer like that unless they had done something to deserve it. So as this story is told, you would assume that the rich guy's righteous, the poor guy's impure. It's just another story like every other one. But as the story goes on, you're going to find out that Jesus has a very different view of things altogether. The rich guy's riches aren't revealing his righteousness, but his spiritual bankruptcy. And the poverty of poor little Lazarus turns out to be the sort of poverty which help, finds help from God above. I think we need to pause at this point and just realize that there are people, even today, that will try and tell you that righteousness comes along with riches. Um, it's not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. During Martin Luther's day, he found himself nauseated seeing the opulence and over-the-top riches of the Catholic Church when he compared it with the plight of the poor in his day. He saw the gilded cathedrals and the fine vestments of the priests and the utter lack of mercy for anyone who was truly in need. And that's one of the things that set him on his journey that ultimately sparked the Protestant Reformation. Uh, in our day, there are still people that will try and tell you that riches uh, that, if, if you, that if you're righteous, that you will be rich. Uh, they go by the title of the prosperity gospel these days. Love to be on your television. Go to third world countries, rent out big stadiums, and, and promise people if they'll just give what little money they have to that preacher, then surely they will be righteous and therefore they will become rich. I once had a conversation with someone who had been caught up in the prosperity gospel he had shown some promise in wanting to live a life for God, turn away from his sins and repentance. Uh, but he had this idea that it must mean that he is going to get everything he always wanted, his God dream, as he called it, of being rich. Uh, when I was trying to help disciple him and point him toward how to be content and to live in a humble, simple way with what the Lord's provided, he just wasn't willing to hear it. Because his heart had fell in love with money, even though he didn't have any. See, brothers and sisters, this is the first assumption that Jesus blows up. That somehow, if you are righteous, then you must be rich. Or that if you're rich, you must be righteous. There's not a one-to-one -one correlation, according to Jesus. 
It's possible for poor people to be lovers of money, even money they don't have. And it's also very possible, as Jesus repeatedly warns, for rich people to be lovers of money. Uh, What matters is what the heart treasures most, as Jerry just said earlier in the service. Uh, Jesus tells us that you can't just look at someone's riches and determine their standing before God. But on the other hand, there is one way where your riches can reveal something about you. And that is how you choose to use them. This brings us to our second section and our second assumption. I deserve mercy, but I don't need to show it. Verses 22 through 26. Um, I've already said I'm a Lord of the Rings nerd. Glad to carry a card with that. So I will point your attention to uh, a truth that J.R.R. Tolkien uh, wrote that resonates with this part of the Bible. Uh, There's a character called Wormtongue. He is a poisonous advisor for King Theoden of Rohan. And he has poisoned his mind and caused him to murder many virtuous knights of Rohan over the years. And he shows no mercy to any of his enemies. So when Gandalf and the Fellowship of the Ring show up, he immediately tries to get King Theoden to have them killed on the spot. No mercy. But it's amazing what happens once Gandalf uses his wizard powers to cast a spell to remove the darkness of Wormtongue from the king's mind. Suddenly, the king sees things as they are. Suddenly, Gandalf is the one in the driver's seat. And what happens to Wormtongue? Well, he becomes a groveling snake, pleading for mercy when just moments before he was unwilling to give any to anyone else. Uh, It's not a good look to lack mercy in your life and to expect that God in heaven, one day after your life is over, will grant you the mercy withheld from others. Uh, That's what the story begins to focus on in this next section. Uh, Something unremarkable happens. It's unremarkable because eventually it happens to everyone. The rich man and Lazarus both die. Uh, The way Luke describes Lazarus' death, it is highly unremarkable. Uh, Verse 22, we see, uh, there we are, that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Luke does not spare any extra words. He just notes that this unremarkable, invisible poor man died. It could be that no one even noticed for quite a long time that he had ceased breathing and ceased living. He's the sort of guy that might lay there for days until he started to smell. And someone finally decided to move his body to avoid the inconvenience of people having to be around it. Uh, No, Lazarus did not have anyone that mourned him. We're not told there was any sort of funeral. It was an unremarkable life that came to an unremarkable end. But something very strange happens after that. We're told after his final breath, God's angels came and carried him off to heaven. Glorious messengers from God. Uh, Though the people on earth didn't seem to care about Lazarus, it turned out God himself cared about him deeply. Well, why was that? Uh, I don't think this is saying that all poor people go to heaven. 
Um, I think Luke intentionally has told a story with a man whose name reveals why he ends up in heaven. See, the name Lazarus means God has helped. Somehow in the pitiable poor state he had lived in, Lazarus had learned how to rely on God to be his helper. He had learned that he was poor in this world, and yet his trust that somehow that he was headed for the riches of heaven. And when the day of his dying came, Lazarus found eternal comfort to be his new home. Now, the real shock, though, is what happens to the rich man. After he dies, you might think that the man that everyone on earth knew his name and assumed was important, that surely he would be someone whose name would be great in heaven. Lots of people showed up to his funeral. He had a proper burial, the way Jews back then expected. And yet, we're told that he ends up in Hades. I think Jesus, again, just using the categories people in the day would have understood. You die, you either go to one of two places. Present heaven, presence of God, or present hell, under God's judgment away from him. Uh, This is a very shocking reversal. Uh, Lazarus, who had everything in this world and was higher, uh, the rich man who had everything in this world, thought of himself as higher than people like Lazarus, finds himself to be spiritually bankrupt and under the judgment of God. Um, While he's there, surprise, surprise, he looks, and this is one detail that, by the way, I don't think we're meant to uh, take as literal for heaven and hell right now or when we will, uh, uh, after we die, Um, He's able to look off into the distance and see Lazarus with Abraham off far away. And then the story turns into a dialogue as the rich man cries out to Father Abraham for mercy. Uh, Let's pick up reading here in verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Already several things are revealed about the judgment that the rich man is uh, having happened to him. Uh, One is it is a sort of anguish. I don't think we should understand this as literal flames. Uh, In present heaven and present hell, we're waiting our resurrection bodies, so we're without a body during that time. Uh, But whatever is happening, it's so awful that the only way our minds can get it across is as if someone is being tormented with fire. In his anguish, he cries out for mercy, only he finds that mercy is not possible for those who inhabit hell. Abraham responds back to him, verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that that you in your lifetime received your good things, And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Uh, The rich man, in some ways, still thinks of himself as in the driver's seat. He's thinking of Lazarus as the poor one that can be ordered around. He He talks to Abraham, not to Lazarus, and assumes that Lazarus is a sort of servant in heaven that could be sent to bring him some metaphorical water to alleviate his suffering. But Abraham says that he completely misunderstands the situation. While in life, he seemed to have all the good things, in the afterlife, 
Now it's revealed that he is the one that will be in discomfort. While Lazarus had a hard life, now his is an existence of total comfort forever. And this reversal has all happened because of the life that he has lived. Uh, Think about what that rich man had done for so, so long. Uh, He had gone out that ornate gate after eating from his full table, wearing his fine clothes. And not a single time had he stopped to help pitiable poor Lazarus. A, A man who would have been satisfied with even a small snack, but who could have undoubtedly have received so much more. The ridiculously rich man could have given him all the clothes he needed. He could have provided him with a place to stay. He could have given him a job. Certainly he could have given him enough food to stay alive. But he lacked mercy. And now he finds he will receive none in turn from God forever as a result of judgment. He also finds out that this, his fate in hell, will go on without end. There's no escape from it. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. There'll be no jailbreaks from hell. Uh, There'll be no rescue missions no humanitarian aid. Once the wrath of God rests upon a soul, there is nothing but unending days of torment, just torment, because we have sinned against the righteous God of heaven. Uh, The rich man learns this after it's too late to do anything about it. He has loved money and lacked mercy, and now he will receive nothing from God except wrath even when he cries out earnestly for mercy. Now, I think undoubtedly the main application from this point is for us to ask ourselves whether we are the sort of people that show mercy and whether we should expect God to show us mercy one day as a result. Now, this does not mean that you can buy your way into heaven by giving away enough of your money, but it is true, as Jesus said, that if you don't show mercy, then you should expect to receive none from God. See, if uh, we have truly repented of our sins and found ourselves to be the wretched sinners that we truly are before God, and that we will find our hearts helped by the very mercy of God in heaven. How else can a heart that's been so helped respond except to show that same mercy toward others? If we don't, it's a sure sign that we've never been helped by God. Uh, see, this. well, it's true that your riches can't reveal whether you're righteous on their own. This is how your riches can reveal the state of your heart. Do you use them in compassion and merciful giving to alleviate the suffering of others? When we see someone in need, do we try and find an excuse to forget about them, to avoid them? Do we rationalize in our head all the reasons why, well, we don't have to help. Someone else should do that. If we lack mercy, we have no reason to expect mercy from God once our earthly lives are over. Uh, Jesus expects his followers to be the sort of people that are full of mercy because they've so richly received mercy from God. 
And church, I have to say, I want to encourage you on this. I have seen a heart of mercy evident among you. Uh, When you see someone that's hurting, again and again, I see you open your homes and open your hearts and draw close to provide for their needs in various different ways because you have connected the dots between the mercy you've received and the mercy you must give. I was touched. There was a story not long back where someone who found themselves in great need didn't even have a place to live that was safe. Some members of our church found out about it, and before I could even do anything about it, they had already found a living situation free of charge where they could come and have their needs met. Um, Brothers and sisters, would that heart be evident more and more amongst us, Uh, whether it's our individual acts of mercy or the things we do together? Um, That filter of hope trip coming up, going to Guatemala, helping people have drinking water. That's an act of mercy. And we do that because we've received the mercy of God in heaven. And we want more than anything to continue receiving that mercy off into eternity. Uh, Let's be the sort of church that doesn't see past people, but instead sees needs and moves forward and uses the things God's given us. Now, of course, you can apply this lots of different ways, fruitfully, uh, um, being generous with our time and our emotions and our relationships. But certainly Jesus lays the emphasis in this parable on our money. Love of money and lack of mercy leads to lasting misery. Uh, Let's not be those that pretend it's any different in our lives. Uh, Let's remember that only hearts that are generous in the here and now will find generosity from God in the life to come. But the greatest act of mercy that can be done is not one that you can use a checkbook on its own to accomplish. Um, Pastor John Piper said, we care about all types of suffering, but especially eternal suffering. It's right to place an emphasis on making sure people avoid lasting misery in hell. Which brings us to our third and final assumption, verses 27 through 31. I just need more convincing reasons to believe. I just need more convincing reasons to believe. Uh, The rich man finally has a thought that is not entirely self-centered. In verse 27, he makes another plea, this time on behalf of his family members. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Having grown up in the 90s and early 2000s, I'm familiar with a program called Scared Straight. Um, It was a program that had uh, good aims. It was trying to help kids realize the gravity of the choices they make. Uh, Maybe it didn't do so in the most helpful way in retrospect. Um, It got people that were convicted felons and now had paid their debt to society to to come out and come into their school and talk about how horrible it was in prison. And the thought was, if you hear how bad it is in prison, then maybe you'll learn from that person's example and avoid going there yourself. 
I think over the years that probably less emphasis on that. I don't think it worked out quite the way the people that started that program thought it would. But it has a noble aim at least. Out of a lack, uh, as an act of mercy, to warn people of what will happen if they keep doing a certain thing and end up as a result in a place they really don't want to go. Abraham, um, the, the rich man has that same sort of logic. If only there was some way to warn my brothers, well, surely then they would repent and they won't come here. Uh, once again, he's seeing Lazarus as a pawn on his chessboard. Uh, Abraham, why don't you send Lazarus to warn my brothers? Maybe send him in a dream or a vision or something. Um, Lazarus is not a person, certainly not someone of a higher station. He's still the poor guy, and he's still the rich guy, even with the tables turned. Uh, but Abraham responds that the problem is not more information. It's lack of conviction. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, Abraham is surely right. If you were a good, upstanding Jew and knew your scriptures, what we would call our Old Testament, you already knew all the things you needed to know to understand that a love of money and a lack of mercy is going to lead to lasting misery. There's lots of passages in the Old Testament that reveal the heart of God, particularly his care for the poor, and even extend God's mercy shown to his people as something that's obligated to be shown to the poor. One such example, Deuteronomy 24, verses 20 through 22. It's instructions for how you're to handle the harvesting of your groves and your fields. It says, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be the so for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So when you're harvesting your, your grapes or your olives, you leave a little on the tree. You leave a little on the, on the vine. Why? Well, as an act of mercy. Uh, for those that are poor and don't have a means of sustaining themselves, they can come and find enough to be able to survive. And what's the reason? Because God showed you mercy when you were in Egypt. So now you have to show mercy to others as those who have received it. Surely that what we have in the scriptures is enough for us to know that we ought not love money before God. And that one day God will hold us all accountable for how we live the lives he's given us. Yes, even when we lack mercy. Which is why Abraham says it won't do any good. The problem is not lack of information, but lack of conviction. The rich man is not done, though. He has one last plea. In verse 30, and he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham responds, he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither they, will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Uh, the rich man says, just up the ante a little bit here. Not a vision or a dream. Let's make it an actual person in bodily form, resurrected in front of their eyes. Surely a miracle of that size would be enough to get their attention. 
But Abraham points out that even a giant flashy miracle like a resurrection, it won't be enough to convince a heart that wants to remain in its sin. You see, this is undoubtedly the main punchline of the story. Uh, The Pharisees were those who knew the law of God inside and out, and yet they were refusing to repent. And so how does Jesus tell this story? In such a way so that they actually get the very thing that the rich man's asking for. Uh, They hear, through the telling of the story, the warning of a person from beyond the grave telling them, don't come here, you will not like the eternal misery waiting for you. But of course, they won't listen. Uh, Not because God has not given them enough information, but because their hearts don't want to repent and let go of their love of money. Uh, But of course, there's a second layer of irony. Because the author, Luke, who's telling us this story, recounts later in this very book an example of someone who is giving us exactly what the second thing the rich man asked for. Account of someone coming back from the grave and telling us of the horrors that would await us if we will not repent. So to clear our hearts of our love of money and sin while there is time. See, I think this is really the take home for all those who heard this message originally and for us hearing it today. We have been given all the evidence anyone could ever need. Uh, The scriptures that have endured for thousands of years. And yes, even someone who came back from death itself. So the question is, what are we going to do with the warning we've been given? Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, Jesus has an assumption here that is contrary to what most of us think. Uh, Most of us think if God exists, that he owes us some sort of cold, concrete proof that there's no way we could possibly misunderstand. But according to Jesus, God has already revealed more than enough about himself. He's done that by sending messengers down through the years called prophets. He's done that by writing a book or series of books together that we call the Bible. And he's even done that by sending his son, Jesus, both to speak to us and even to rise from the dead to confirm everything he said. You see, the message of the Bible is God's not an unfair God. He keeps careful accounts of each and every one of us. And he knows that none of us have lived up to his holy standard. We've not loved him as we should. We've lived for the love of money or the love of people's approval or the love of pleasure and all manner of other things that the Bible calls sins. And as a result, we all deserve to be sent to that place that the rich man was to that place called hell. We deserve to have the wrath of God upon us now and forever. And no amount of trying to bargain with God or rationalize our way out of it will ever change that. But the good news that outweighs the bad news is that this same God is not just righteous and just, he's also merciful, which is why he sent his son Jesus Uh, See, before Jesus was raised from the dead, he first died a death, uh, a death that was a sacrifice to substitute his own life for sinners of all types. 
That's what Jesus hanging on the cross is all about. And according to the Bible, no matter what you have been loving or what sort of mercy you've been withholding, if you will repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, you'll never experience the eternal misery of hell. God will wipe away your sins and instead give you a forever inheritance. He'll give you a place in the home of heaven. You'll be welcomed into a loving relationship with God that starts now. And one day after you die, angels themselves will carry you into the very presence of God, into your heavenly home. Now, if you've never given your trust to Christ, undoubtedly this passage is meant to shock us a bit, to realize that it will be too late after your life is over. So friend, what are you going to do with it? Uh, you've heard the message. Uh, God has done everything that could be asked. He's spoken, and he's even given confirmation of what he said. So would you respond while there's time? Repent and put your trust in Jesus. If you don't know how to do that, come talk with me after the service. Now, for all of us who are Christians this morning, what are we to take from this? Uh, I think we are to end this parable on an upward note. Uh, you see, undoubtedly, Jesus told this penetrating parable to dispel all the myths of our assumptions of how we can live for love of money and lack of mercy in this world. But he also told it so that for those of us who have found the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, that we could have a picture of what's waiting for us, even after a pain-filled and sometimes pitiful sort of life in this world. Uh, maybe you came here today and you're in a spot where you feel like everyone's been looking past you. Or maybe you frankly don't have enough of some sort of resource, money, relationships, time. Uh, maybe you feel like your life is very pain-filled and difficult. But if you've already come to God and Jesus Christ, you know that your best day is always ahead of you. Because once the day comes where you stop breathing in this world, the most amazing thing will happen. God's angels themselves will come and lovingly gather you into the very presence of God. On that day, no matter when you came to Christ or what sort of life you lived, your name might as well be Lazarus. Because it'll be obvious that your entire life God has helped you. And now your new life is one in which God's help is all you know. So my brothers and sisters, don't envy the things of this world or be discouraged by the many trials and difficulties that we must live through. Instead, set your eyes on that heavenly banquet to come. The feast that will be ours in the house of Zion with King Jesus because as he said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, would you help us to have eyes of faith? Help us with, those, with that spiritual sight to see those that you've put in front of us, even this week. Someone with weighty questions that's discouraging their soul. Someone without enough shelter or food or clothing.
someone who just feels lonely and needs someone to come alongside and remind them that they are valued in God's sight. Uh, Jesus, would you remind us of the mercy we've received and would you even provide an overflow of that mercy so we can come and be your instruments to show others the goodness and the love and grace that's yours. Uh, Jesus, would you fill us now with expectation and hope of what our heavenly home would be like? Uh, help it to outweigh all the difficulties of this life. Seems so weighty, but in comparison to eternity, they're absolutely flimsy. So Jesus, remind us of the goodness that's ours in our inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen.